Hey, my name is Eric Andreessen, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. I would like to quickly correct my pronunciation on a few words from last week's episode after my Chinese teacher, Shu Laosher, emailed me back, most likely quite disappointed, I will admit, that I pronounced the following words wrong. When describing the city Chufu, I pronounced it wrong, because it is not in fact Chufu, it is really Chufu. And when I pronounced one of the emperors, Zhuang Shu, I pronounced his name wrong as well. It is not Zhuang Shu. It is Zhuang Xu. Lastly, when talking about the last of the five emperors, which is Emperor Shun, as I said, it is not Shun. It is really phonetically pronounced Xuan. Sort of a sh yu n sound. Thank you, Lao Shir. I will continue to work on it for my next episodes because... As you guys might know, Chinese is quite difficult. Last week, though, we talked about the five emperors. These five emperors gave us and the people of ancient China a history of how their civilization got its unique details like its governance, moral code, spiritual backbone, and even, yes, its weapons and clothes. Also, as I mentioned last week, after the last of the five emperors came Emperor Yu, and with him, the beginning of the Xia dynasty, which was, again, the first official Chinese dynasty. So now gone are the days of semi-divine rulers, and now begins more or less the real, tangible history. So with that, this is episode two of the history of China, into reality, sort of. Emperor Yu comes into power after the last of the five emperors, Emperor Xuan dies. Yu becomes emperor and the Xia dynasty begins, but the caveat to this whole episode and the whole caveat regarding the Xia dynasty is that while they very well could have been real, virtually nothing exists to prove that they actually did. While chronicles exist, they are written by historians like Sima Qian, who wrote much, much, much later after the fact. To put this into perspective, Sima Qian, the historian I just mentioned, died in 86 BC, while the Xia, which we are going to talk about, and which he wrote about, started in around 2070 BC. So let's put that into perspective. So here, imagine yourself in the year 2020, trying to go back and write the very first and only historical document regarding the American Revolution ever. Let me emphasize, you will probably get most details wrong. Going from word of mouth of what happened, what, 244 years? That's the difference between now and then? You're going to get a lot of things wrong. You're going to misinterpret the story. Things will be put into the history book that probably never happened. Now imagine trying to be the first to research and publish the history of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. That's only a 1,400 or so year difference, which this seems nearly impossible to do at all. If you tried to go write that, I guarantee anyone with our standards today would say, well that would be pretty much impossible. So now just imagine a maybe just under 2,000 year or so difference. So it's no surprise that while these records from historians like Silmachin and others don't really match the archaeological database we have so far when it comes to periods like the Xia. But the existential question that we're going to constantly harp on for the next couple episodes is what else is there to rely on? So before I get into the Xia, I just want to say to take this with quite the grain of salt. 
One of the first five emperors, specifically Emperor Yao, struggled immensely in dealing with the flooding of the Yellow River. His appointed officer to deal with them, Gun, had failed spectacularly, and by the time Yu Xuan, you know, the last of the five emperors, came into power, Gun was either exiled, executed, or killed himself because the stories vary. So Emperor Yu Xuan then decided for some reason to promote the now disgraced Gun's son, Yu, which yes, is the same Yu we mentioned earlier, who was the start of the Xia dynasty, to take over Gun's role to stop the flooding. Now clearly this was a issue that was as important personally to Yu as it was logistically important to the entire empire itself. His father had tried to implement a series of large dams and dikes on the banks of the river to stem the flow of floodwaters, but this, as we know, just did not work. So Yu had to find another way to stop the flooding from ravaging the countryside. Yu would go on to spend the next 13 years studying the river and executing his plan to stop these massive floods. Yu ended up making a system of irrigation canals which relieved flood water into fields, as well as spending a significant amount of time doing something relatively new, dredging the riverbeds. Before I continue, I just want to step back and look at what an insane engineering and logistical project this was. Not just for the standards of 2000 or so BC, but even for the modern day. In 1931, our 1931, that is, the same river in question now, the Yellow River, flooded, and it ended up being one of the deadliest natural disasters of the 20th century. Then, a couple years later in 1938, the Chinese intentionally let the Yellow River flood to try and halt the advancing Japanese Imperial Army, and this move ended up killing half a million Chinese citizens and Japanese soldiers, even going so far as being labeled the largest act of environmental warfare ever in human history. And there were the deadly floods in China in 2017 and in 2010, so clearly this is a long-running and serious problem that even modern technology fails to prevent. But while all of this of what we just talked about happened in the 20th and 21st centuries, Yu is fixing China's current flood problems in the 20th century BC. Again, another way to put this in perspective is as such. The first Roman aqueduct, which we marvel at as an engineering feat that forever changed the world, was built in around 312 BC. And again, around 2070 BC, the Chinese are here moving and fixing entire rivers with waterworks never before seen and wouldn't be seen outside of China until essentially the modern age. But I digress. Back to you. Because Yu, like the last of the two five emperors, was a man of the people. Yu is said to have eaten and slept with the common workers and spent most of his time personally assisting the work of dredging the silty beds of the river for the 13 full years the project took to complete. Imagine that. We marvel at the aqueducts, but imagine Roman consuls or emperors going in there and laying the stones themselves. It seems pretty hard to believe. So after 13 long years, the project was finally finished, and the flooding finally stopped, and the Chinese valley was finally able to prosper. While not a lot exists, as I mentioned, to prove that the Xia or even Yu the Great existed the way we were told by ancient historians, it has, though, been recently proven that there was, indeed, a massive, catastrophic flood of the Yellow River around 4,000 years ago, which, by the way, is right when this story happens. 
so maybe the story holds more truth than I gave it credit for. Nonetheless, Yu Shen, the emperor at the time, was immeasurably impressed. The issue that had almost toppled his predecessor's reign by making him try to literally resign had finally been fixed. Yu the Great, the man who had personally oversaw the project, is then forever referred to in history as Da Yu Zhe Shui, otherwise known as Great Yu Controls the Waters. Emperor Xuan was very proud of Yu, and he then decided to place him in command of his own army. So, Yu the Great had just conquered one of the greatest natural issues facing the Chinese, and was now put in charge of a military force. And what does he do? Well, he leads his men against the San Miao, which were an extremely hostile tribe that continuously raided the Xia's borders. So Yu, who had defeated the river, well, soon defeated the San Miao and drove them far from the land that they were trying to raid. And as a reward for Yu's victories against the river and this very hostile tribe, Emperor Xuan declared him heir to the throne. Xuan soon dies and Yu ends up ruling for 45 years. And on his deathbed, he names his son Qi as his successor. Now, Qi had been a young boy during the time of the Great Flood, and many people loved him for the story of how his father refused to turn home until the flooding had been stopped and how he would work with his men, and how also the young Qi bore his father's absence so well. Though, Qi was not his first choice because Yu had intended to name one of his ministers as the successor, not wishing his son to have the burden of rule. But the fact of the matter is that so many people in Xia China favored Qi that Yu had no choice. The people wanted Qi. And in naming Qi his son as his successor, Yu initiated a policy of dynastic succession, which, by the way, would happen for the next thousands of years. Qi's son Tai Kong was, though, a very poor ruler. An issue we find with Rome is that you might have a great emperor like Marcus Aurelius, but then you have his son, Commodus. A great emperor is one thing, but just giving it to his son does not guarantee success. Though while Tai Kong was by all metrics a poor ruler, many of his successors were very highly skilled and came up with numerous inventions and innovations that were all given and credited to the Xia. Which, by the way, some of these, quick little side note, were some of the armor that they would wear and the rules of chivalry in battle. The fourth ruler after Qi was the great hero Shao Kang, who is known to have revitalized the country and is well known through many legends which tell his tale. But the Xia dynasty, like all other dynasties, begins to decline. And this decline happens under the rule of Kong Jia, which we believe to have been alive around 1789 to 1758 BCE. And this character, much like those of Commodus, cared more for strong drinking than the responsibilities of ruling. He was succeeded by Gao, who was succeeded by Fa, and neither one of them did a great job to improve the lives of anyone but themselves. And the Xia finally comes across its last emperor. The last emperor was Jie, who was believed to have lived around 1728 to around 1675 BC. He was known, though, as a tyrant. And most importantly, and most devastatingly to him, he was the one who was known to have lost the mandate of heaven to his rule. He was quickly overthrown by Tang, who soon established the Shang dynasty. 
as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, much of what we know about the shot is considered to be some weird mix of real and myth. However, by the mid-1960s, archaeological evidence began to emerge that sort of corroborated the tales of the historians. Even now, though, the scholarly consensus is that the history of the Shah dynasty is still largely mythological, even if, you know, the Shah did exist. The issue is that there is no real early account of the Shah dynasty, and there is very little physical evidence that can prove it existed. So it's thought that when I talked about historians like Sima Qian, who wrote thousands of years later, they might have created the Shah dynasty in the details that we now know of it as a model precedent to explain and justify dynastic change in China. Now, this is a quote. The scholar Justin Wintel explains this. Sima Qian had a specific political purpose in giving credence to mythological figures and events. In his view, as in the view of others, rulers were entitled to govern by the mandate of heaven. If they misgoverned, then that license was forfeited. The Yellow Emperor and his successors, including Yu, not only invented all of the essentials of civilization, but provided a model government. As a result of human corruption, however, this divinely instituted order soon collapsed, and thus began the familiar dynastic cycle. A new regime comes to power, but sooner or later loses the divine right to govern, at which point it is replaced by another that does enjoy the mandate of heaven. And this transferability of the mandate of heaven, Sima Qian suggests, is the underlying principle of history. But as I mentioned, the mythological interpretation of the Shah dynasty's existence has been challenged recently because there have been discoveries made. They found palaces and four-walled homes that exist and have been dated back to the time of the Shah dynasty. But the issue still remains. There's been no written record of any of these structures, any of these things. So while the Shah probably were real in some way, the way we know them through the ancient texts most likely is not how they were at all. But next week, we will discuss the Shang, where yes, there are tons of written records that exist about them, and again, yes, they more or less match the archaeological records more times than not. So with that, I will leave you for this week, and I will see you next week on the History of China. <laughs>